So we're reading our Matthew 32, verses 22 to the end. Yep, sorry, it is Genesis. I read Matthew 32, but I practiced Genesis so it's fine. <laughs> the same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of his joint as he wrestled with him. He said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. What do you think it's like to encounter the one true living God? We leave aside all the imaginative fictions of our culture, you know, the white-bearded old man sitting on the clouds, like in the cartoons, or the kindly, jokey gentleman of Hollywood with the quick one-liners. Leave aside those imaginative fictions of what God is like. What would it be like to encounter the one true living God? Can you think of any examples in the Bible of where people have met the one true living God? There's quite a few. Uh, One of the recurrent realities of those who meet God in all his glory is that they are terrified when they meet God. They're struck down in fear. If you think about the Israelites at Mount Sinai, they heard the voice of God from the mountain and saw the thunder and the lightning and they begged Moses to not let God speak to them anymore. They were so afraid. Or you think of Isaiah and Isaiah 6 falling down as though dead when he's confronted with a vision of the living God and his overwhelming holiness. Or John the Apostle falling down as though dead when confronted with a vision of the risen Jesus in all his glory in Revelation chapter 1. There's an important reality to this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs 9.10 tells us. But that's not the only sort of encounter people have with the one true living God in the Bible. There's another sort, and it's just as important and much more common. In fact, it's an experience we all have of God. We wrestle with God. You might be going, I can't quite remember that moment when I was wrestling God. No, we all wrestle with God. And that's what we're going to try to explore a little bit today. This idea of wrestling with God comes to us out of the passage we just had read for us from Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob wrestles with an unnamed man 
but who we know from later in the Bible, from Hosea 12.4, Hosea 12.4, we know that this was an angel of the Lord. And this comes as a climax to a series of events in the preceding chapters. So before we sort of try to understand it, we need to rewind a bit and pick up the story in its context. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to have it open or pull it up on your phone. We're going to cover a few quick chapters. As we get into that, if you open up to Genesis chapter 29, which is where we're going to pick up the story, let me just recap from last week. You might remember that we're looking at one of the 12 panels in the book of Genesis. This panel, this uh, number of stories, runs from Genesis chapter 25 all the way to chapter 35, and it concerns the descendants of Isaac, the twins Esau and Jacob. What we saw last week was that the Lord, the one true living God, gave a prophecy before the twins were born, back in Genesis chapter 25, that the older will serve the younger. So Esau is meant to serve Jacob. Now Jacob, whose name we saw meant he deceives, he twice deceives his older brother Esau. He deceives Esau from his birthright, which should have been Esau's as the oldest, and he also deceives Esau in getting his father's blessing that his father Isaac intended for Esau, but Jacob steals it from him. The result of this was that Esau despised his twin, Jacob, and he resolved to kill him. So as a result of that, Jacob flees from the promised land of Canaan to his uncle's homeland of Haran. But along the way, as we saw last week, the Lord God grants Jacob a vision in a dream and he makes him a particular promise. Now the Lord's promise is there in Genesis chapter 28 and it's worth just having a look back at. Uh, verse 13 to 15. I'm going to read it out because this promise and Jacob's response set the trajectory for all of the events that follow, which we'll see in the rest of the chapters. So here's the Lord's promise from Genesis chapter 28, verse 13. The Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, notice here, there's a promise of land, verse 13, of many descendants, verse 14, that he and his offspring will be the conduit of God's blessing to all people on earth, verse 14, and that God himself will be with him, protect him and bring him back to the land he's currently fleeing, verse 15. So those are aspects of the promise and we noted last week Jacob's bargaining response. Verse 20, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. Then Yahweh, God's personal name, then this God who's appeared to me in his dream, then he will be my God. If he comes through with his promise. Well, it exactly fits Jacob's character actually, as we saw last week. Jacob is a deceiver. He's a swindler. He's a wheeler and dealer. He swindled his brother out of his birthright for a bowl of red stew. He deceived his father into giving him his brother's blessing and now he seeks to cut a deal with God. It's not the last deal Jacob will strike. 
as we'll see today. So this promise and Jacob's response set the trajectory of what we're going to see today as we pick up the account in Genesis chapter 29. So if you're writing some notes, here's your first heading, you can jot down. Number one, the Lord keeps his promise to Jacob in Haran. The Lord keeps his promise to Jacob in Haran. This is Genesis 29 to 31. Genesis 29 to 31. Now, it's a very common method in ancient narratives uh, to structure the story as what's called a chiasm or an in-and-out structure or uh, a bit like a sandwich where the different layers in the sandwich balance each other and the highlight of the sandwich is what's in the middle, what's in the central point. And the account of Jacob's time in Haran has this chiastic in-and-out structure. It's got five layers, right? Layer one, top layer, A. Jacob meets Laban with nothing. Jacob meets Laban with nothing. This is chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. Jacob arrives in Haran with nothing more than just a staff in his hand, as he tells us a bit later in chapter 32. But under God's hand, he then, in this chapter, he runs into some shepherds who happen to be working for his uncle Laban, then, which was, of course, the very person he was coming to find. Moreover, he meets Laban's daughter, Rachel, who then sends word to her father, and so Jacob is welcomed into Laban's household. This is, as he says there, this is, you are my own flesh and blood, in verse 14. So Jacob meets Laban with nothing. Second layer, B, the marriage deal. The marriage deal, or if you like, the deceiver is deceived. The deceiver is deceived. And this is all about wives. This is chapter 29, verse 14 through to verse 30. Jacob works for his uncle Laban for a month and then Laban says, look, you shouldn't be working for nothing for me. Tell me what I should be paying you. Jacob's answer, well remember Jacob is a wheeler and dealer and he thinks Rachel, Laban's daughter, is pretty hot but he's, got no, he's, got, he's not put off by the fact that it's a, um, she's his cousin. But anyway, uh, he's got no money for the traditional bride price. Right? He's come with nothing. So have a look then at uh, the deal he, he seeks to strike in Genesis 29, verse 18 to 20. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you, Laban, seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Notice Rachel's the younger daughter, right? Laban had two daughters, the older daughter Leah and the younger daughter Rachel. Mind you, would you work for seven years or would you hope would someone would work for seven years for you? Seven years, that's a long time. Oh, you must have really had the hots for her, I reckon. <laughs> Verse 19, Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Well, that's a great vote of confidence there. <laughs> um, stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That's beautiful. Don't turn up your nose at that. That's lovely. It seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that lovely? That's about the nicest thing that happens in all of these, these chapters. So enjoy, enjoy that moment. But Laban can play this deception game pretty well. Remember, Laban is... Jacob's uncle. And Rebecca, we've also seen, uh, Laban's sister, who's Jacob's mum, is also pretty good at the deception, so it seems like it runs in the family. After the seven years, 
Jacob then says, okay, time for us to get married. Laban organises the wedding and there is the bride at the wedding, veiled up as she would be, as custom would have it. They retire in the evening after all the feasting in the dark to consummate the marriage. But then when the morning comes, as verse 25 puts it, when morning came, there was Leah. Laban had pulled a switcheroo. He'd tricked Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. Jacob is not impressed. Have a look there, verse 25. Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Basically, why have you Jacobed me? Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. But actually, literally, the way he says it is, it's not done in our place to set the younger before the elder. What was the prophecy? For Jacob, the older will serve the younger. The older will be, so the younger will be before. But Jacob says, it's not done in our place, mate, to do it like that. Jacob, the deceiver, has been deceived. But as a concession, Laban allows him to marry Rachel as well, a week later, in return for another seven years' work. So that then brings us to the middle part, the central part of the sandwich, this story. Part C, God gives descendants to Jacob. God gives descendants to Jacob. This section is all about the children. This is chapter 29, verse 31, through to 30, verse 24. So through Leah and Rachel and their two servant girls, Bilhah and Zilpah, the Lord starts to fulfil his promise to Jacob and grant him descendants. Through the four women, Jacob has 11 sons and one daughter. But the clear theme throughout this part of the account is that the having of these children is entirely in the Lord's hand. As you read it through, God is talked about constantly. He's the one who grants the capacity to conceive and who at times closes wombs as well. It's all entirely in his sovereign control. What God is doing here is fulfilling his promise made to Jacob to grant him descendants. It's the beginning of God's fulfilment of his promise that stands at the centre of this particular account of Jacob's time in Haran. Here are the descendants that God had promised. But if you know how the rest of Old Testament history goes, and in particular the history of the Jewish people, the great significance of the sons born to these women is of course that they become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel coming down to us through history. So if you were a Jew, tracing your ancestry back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, you were descended from one of these sons, one of the sons of Jacob. So this really is the beginning of your story, your heritage, depending on which of the tribes you belong to. That's why these birth stories are at the centre of this, this sandwich because they're so key to Israelite identity coming down through the centuries. But then we start to move out again from the centre, balancing up the earlier layers. So we're back to level B now. Back to level B. The livestock deal. We had the marriage deal, now we get the livestock deal. Or if you like, this time it's the deceiver strikes back. This is all about livestock. So, so Jacob worked for Laban for 14 years. Jacob now has a sizeable family, but he's got no wealth, property or possessions of his own. So they strike a deal. Jacob can take all the speckled or spotted or dark coloured sheep and goats 
and they will be his and he can then grow his own flocks from them. But Laban thinks, I've tricked him before, I'll trick him again. Having struck the deal, Laban immediately removes all the speckled and spotted livestock, sends them away with his sons on a three-day journey. So there are no animals for Jacob to take that meet the criteria. But this time, Jacob, the deceiver, strikes back. Following the superstitions of the time around breeding, he sets up a system so that the non-speckled and spotted livestock would produce speckled and spotted young. It's all got to do with branches and stripping them so they look speckled and spotted and put them in front when the lambs, when the animals mate and then they'll have... I mean, it's all superstitious, right? Uh, and, you know, no animal husbandry science really is on view here in this particular moment. Nevertheless, the point is, God blessed Jacob's dodgy method. And he promised to be with him wherever he went. In fact, Jacob tweaked his system so that it only operated when the healthy and the strong animals were mating and not the weaker ones. So he ended up with only the stronger offspring. You can see the way it all played out there in Genesis chapter 30, verse 43. In this way, Jacob grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So the Lord blesses Jacob, gives him lots of livestock. Which brings us to the final part of the sandwich. Jacob flees Laban with everything the Lord had given him. Remember, Jacob arrived and met Laban with nothing, but now Jacob flees Laban with everything the Lord had given him. Chapter 31. Relations then between Jacob and Laban deteriorate, as you might expect, after 20 years of deceiving and being deceived. The Lord tells Jacob it's time to go back to his family in Canaan. So Jacob deceives Laban, as it's described in chapter 31 verse 20, one more time. Whilst Laban is away shearing the sheep, Jacob picks up, packs up all the family and all his belongings and he makes a run for home without telling Laban what he's doing, described as a deception. When Laban finds out he's not happy, so he gives chase. A week later he manages to catch up with, with Jacob, but the Lord keeps his promise to Jacob, appears to Laban in a dream and warns him off saying anything good or bad to Jacob. Basically, you watch yourself. Laban, I'm with this guy Jacob. So, the two parties meet, they speak their peace and they make a covenant to not harm each other and to respect each other's lands. And so ends Jacob's adventures with Laban in Haran. So that concludes that little section, but the wider story about Jacob is not resolved. In particular, what about Esau? He, it was his plot to kill Jacob, which was the reason Jacob fled in the first place. And what about God's promise to Jacob? We've seen the descendants, yes, seen that start. But what about the land of Canaan that God had promised to Jacob? At the moment, Jacob is still right on the edge of the land. He hasn't really crossed over into it. And that then brings us to the next section, chapters 32 and 33, which I call Jacob and Esau and the Lord. Jacob and Esau and the Lord, Genesis 32 to 33. Now, this section of the story also has a simple sandwich in and out shape with just three layers. First layer, the preparation for meeting Esau. The preparation for meeting Esau, chapter 32, verses 1 to 21. 
So Jacob sends a message ahead of him to tell Esau that he's on the way. Remember, hasn't met Esau for 20 years. And the last time Esau was after his blood. So have a look at Genesis 32, verses 4 to 6. Jacob instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favour in your eyes. The messengers go. Then we read, When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And then are with him. That doesn't sound good. 400 men coming with Esau to meet him. What does that mean? Well, Jacob freaks out. We're told in verse 7 that in great fear and distress, Jacob divides everyone and everything into two groups, hopeful that at least one group might survive, that Esau will attack one and maybe the others will live. He even prays in verses 9 to 12, calling on God to fulfil his promise to make him prosper and return him to his country in safety. And then he sends a massive gift of livestock to Esau in an attempt to pacify him. Five herds he sends him. First of all of goats, then of sheep, then of camels, then of cattle, and then of donkeys. I don't know if the order is significant. Finally, he sends across the river all of his wives and children, and he alone is left. That's the preparations. Come to the middle of this sandwich, the middle. He doesn't meet Esau. He meets the Lord, the divine encounter. The divine encounter, chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. This is the portion we had read for us. Jacob meets a man. We don't know anything about him. It's evening, the man's there. He He meets this man and he wrestles with this man. He fights this man until daybreak, verse 24. But what you see in verse 25 is, finally at daybreak, the man takes control over Jacob by sort of affecting Jacob's hip in some way. Touches his hip and sort of displaces it somehow. The man takes control. But Jacob won't let go. Whereas before he was wrestling for control, now it seems like having been disabled, he now just clings on to the guy. He clings on to the guy and won't let him go. Not, he's not, no longer holding on in desperation. He's holding on, sorry, he's no longer holding on in dominance. He's now holding in desperation. He desperately wants a blessing from this guy. Verse 26. See, Jacob has been brought low. He's been humbled. In a way, mirroring his experience with Esau. Right? He's sent all his tribes, he's got Esau coming at him, he's being brought low by Esau and now he meets this man, this messenger of the Lord, and he's been brought low and he's now desperate. So he clings on and says, no, I won't let you go until you bless me. Lift me up out of my low position. And Jacob gets the blessing, verses 27 to 29, with a change of name. The Lord changes his name. He says, you will now be known as Israel, which literally means he struggles with God. 
Now this seems to be a pivotal moment for Jacob. From all the stories up to this point, Jacob has just been the deceiver, as his name suggests. But from this point, as far as I can make out, I don't think Jacob does any more deception. Not only has he had his name changed, but the name change is because he's actually undergone a profound character change. Yes, he's the person who struggles with God and that's how he'll be known from this time on. So we come back to this divine encounter in a moment. This is the divine encounter at the middle of the sandwich and then there's the meeting with Esau. Chapter 33. Jacob meets Esau with all humility. Esau, praise God, bears no grudge and is welcoming to him. But the key point, I think, which reveals the whole point of the story and actually resolves the tension that goes right back to God's promise and Jacob's sort of initial vow is in the very last verse of chapter 33. If you've got the Bible open there, chapter 33, just let me read from verse 18. After Jacob came from Padam Haram, he arrived safe at Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which you've probably got a footnote there in your Bible. Have a look down at the English translation, which means God, the God of Israel. Sorry, who's Israel again? He is, Jacob. He's finally actually said, the God, my God. That had been the very thing that he'd resisted doing the whole way through. If you trace through from when Jacob made the initial vow, he said, if you come through and protect me, if you do, then you will be my God. And all the way through, all this time in Haran, you know what? He never called God my God. It was always the God of my father or the God of Abraham. Never my God. Until this moment. Until he's had this encounter with God. And then he calls it God, the God of Israel. This has been a profound moment for Jacob. Now Yahweh, the one true living God, would be his God. And I think this reveals the point of the divine wrestling match. What God was doing by sending his messenger to wrestle with Jacob there on the edge of the river was to bring Jacob to the point of fulfilling his vow. Bring him to the point of actually going, Jacob, I've been with you, I've I've blessed you, I've given you all of these possessions, I've given you children, I've given you wives, I've brought you back to the land, it's all going, I've done all... Are you going to keep your promise? I am not going to let you move forward from here until you fulfil your vow. And Jacob does. He's had, but he, it's only through wrestling, it's only by being brought low, actually, that he finally, at that point of utter need and complete helplessness, decides that yes, he will entrust himself to God. Now I think this helps us then make sense of this story. Jacob is brought to his knees before he will finally acknowledge the one true living God as his God. And in fact, this demonstrates a rule of the universe. 
a rule of... Uh, now, I don't know what you think the rules of the universe are. You probably think, well, there's probably physics. Physics has, you know, all the rules of the universe. Right. Not true. It doesn't have all the rules of the universe. Here is a true rule of the universe. The one true living God, the only God who is truly God, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is a biblical, it's not just a biblical principle, a biblical truth. It is a rule of the universe revealed as it is in the Christian scriptures. You can find it in places like Proverbs 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He lifts up the humble. Often the reason that God opposes the proud is because he does bring people to that place of dependence, that place of utter need, even yet sometimes desperation, where their faith, their active trust in the one true living God and in the Lord Jesus has to be put into real action. I think we see a picture of this here in Jacob as God sends his messenger to wrestle with him on the edge of the promised land. And in a way, it's just a shadow of that greater story where that same rule of the universe, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, where that same truth is lived out and seen most profoundly in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bible there, flick with me to just two places in the New Testament to reflect a little on this truth. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. Just as I read out these verses, or as you follow along, think about the story of Jacob that we've just read. See if you hear any echoes of that story in what the writer to the Hebrews says about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Or we'll leave the Melchizedek thing for another day. But think about verses 7 to 9 there. Notice there, we're told that Jesus in the course of his life offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. So remind you of Jacob there, knowing that Esau and his 400 men are coming. What does Jacob do? He divides into two camps and then prays to God. Please, Lord, fulfil your promise. Here is Jacob praying, actually, like Jesus did, with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Interestingly, Jesus is heard in his prayers because of his reverent submission. Notice also verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Did Jesus have to learn obedience? Isn't Jesus perfect? Isn't Jesus the perfect human being? In what way did he have to learn? Yes, because Jesus actually is a human being. He too needed to learn obedience, not because he was being disobedient, but learn in his own experience what it means to be obedient, 
the practice of being obedient to his Heavenly Father. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Even as Jesus faced the persecution from the Jews of his day, even as he died upon the cross, facing such incredible opposition from ungodly people, he learned obedience to his Heavenly Father through what he suffered. And then you'll notice, verse 9, And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Here is the link between Jesus and the Jacob story. Because what was the result of Jesus' obedience? He became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. What was the promise made to Jacob? The part of the promise made to Jacob was that through you and your offspring, all people would be blessed. How does God bring about that promise, that through Jacob and his offspring, all people will be blessed? It's not until you get to Jesus, as Jesus learns obedience through what he suffers, and having been made perfect, he becomes the source of salvation for all, all who would put their faith in him. What Jesus achieved in his death on the cross and rising to new life, all who put their trust in him, of the promise made to Jacob. So here we see in the Jacob story an echo of even that greater story of obedience and crying out to God that we see in the person of Jesus. What does it mean for us? Well, turn to one other passage and we'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7. And Peter, writing to Christians, says this. He says, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Is that a bit like Jacob being submissive to his older brother Esau, finally, when they meet? All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Which is what Jacob eventually did when he met Esau. He humbled himself before Esau. And then Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Which is what what Jacob finally did. There, humbling himself before God's messenger on the edge of the river. Verse 7, Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Which is what God had promised he would do with Jacob all the way through. There are many resonances here, I think, in Jacob's story, or should I say Israel's story, for what it means if you call yourself a Christian today. Because you, if you are a Christian today, that means you've been grafted in to God's people, the nation of Israel. So you too are now part of Israel. You too are part of the people who wrestle with God, who struggle with God. And I think it's true in two ways. In the two ways that it was true for Jacob, Israel. Sometimes we struggle against God and he has to bring us sometimes gently, graciously low so that we might actually then cling to him. We struggle with him, but then we cling to him. 
Both those meanings, I think, of struggling with God are, are lived true in our lives as Christians. I don't know what the situations are in your life where you're struggling against God, where you're fighting against his good, generous will for you. But let me tell you, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you are fighting against God, I know who will win. So maybe stop struggling against God and maybe humble yourself before him and cling to him because he promises in Christ Jesus to never leave you, never forsake you and fulfil all of his promises to you. So I encourage you to do that.